You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 30, Digital Archaeology in the Spanish Countryside. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Chris Sims. On today's show, we talk to Scott DeBrestian from Central Michigan University about their work using various technologies in Spain. Let's get to it. Welcome to the show, everyone, and I'm here, as I said in the introduction, with my co-host, Chris Sims, who will be joining us in a second, but he's, uh, just in case you guys hear anything, he's currently walking home, so he's on Skype on his phone right now, and uh, we'll transition him to uh, another medium um, during the first break, so, but... Chris is going to come on in, and then, uh, but right now, we're going to introduce our special guest today, and his name is uh, Scott DeBrestian, and Scott, how's it going? I'm going well. How are you? Good, good. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself, um, like where, you're, uh, where, you, where your school is, where you work, and then where your project is. Absolutely. Um, my name is Scott DeBreshton, as Chris said. Um, I am assistant professor of art history at Central Michigan University in the Department of Art and Design, and I am co-director of a project in northern Spain called the Najaria Valley Research Project uh, that's based in uh, the town of Najara, which is uh, in north-central Spain. It's, the area is known as La Rioja, and most people know it because it is the place where most of the Spanish wine comes from. Oh, nice. Yeah. You don't mind going out there during the field seasons, do you? Certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, what is this project? Like, what is the uh, what is the research product? What are you guys researching? Well, there are several elements to it. Um, we're working on uh, studying the history of two valleys uh, in northern Spain. Um, and we're looking at change between the Roman period and the Middle Ages. So we're really interested in how society changes, how city development changes, how culture, material culture changes. So we're really investigating a whole variety of, of different questions, but all involving uh, this uh, change over time. Mm-hmm. And the two valleys are different in that one, where Nahara is, the Naharia Valley that we get our name from, uh, was very much a political and economic center uh, through most of that period, whereas the other valley we're looking at, which is a little bit to the west, was a lot more peripheral, and so we're trying to compare them across time. So you've got two really big research areas here. How how are you guys researching across these whole these two entire valleys? Like, what kind of stuff are you using? Uh, what methods are you using? Well, we're going step by step. So this is intended okay. to be a long-term project. Um, mm-hmm. And so we're focusing on specific areas at first. So uh, one of our questions has to do with the town of Nahara and its medieval history. And we're mm-hmm. working on a digital reconstruction of that town. And in the valley to the west, we're looking at an early medieval church uh, called the Iglesia de la Asuncion, the Church of the Assumption, in a little town called San Vicente. And the uh, church is important because it preserves a whole range of Roman and medieval sculpture in its walls, rebuilt, uh, and we're studying and doing a bunch of uh, digital imaging of those uh, those blocks and sculptures. Mm-hmm. Okay, and why don't we get into the the digital imaging a little bit, because that's one of the big things we want to talk about today. What sure. are your, um, before we get into really what you're doing now, what are kind of your long-term goals for your, the, the, I don't want to say digital preservation, but maybe digital presentation of this project area. Like, what are you guys working towards? Right. Well, one of the things that attracted us to that uh, church is that it has been relatively little studied. I mean, it's been studied as a medieval uh, structure, but not really for the earlier material 
that is uh, incorporated into it. And a lot of it is uh, hard to access. It's in a very remote area. I mean, remote in you know a modern 21st century sense, but it's a place that not a lot of people get to and much of the material has not been published. And so one of our objectives is to make these uh, available uh, to a wider audience. And one of the ways we can do that is by creating 3D models of, of many of them. Okay. Okay. And where have you started with that? Well, there are about 100 uh, so far that we uh, – early uh, blocks, st- sculptures, and funerary stele that we have uh, uh, discovered in the walls. And there are probably more. Uh, not all of them are visible on the exterior or interior. And we'd have to deconstruct the church in order to find <laughs> the rest of them. Um, but the ones that are preserved, uh, some of them are in the inside of the church. Um, mm-hmm. it, there's a little bit of an interesting story to go along with that. Uh, for a very long time, this church was thought to be relatively recent from the 17th century or later. And then uh, about um, 20 years ago, uh, one of the caretakers noticed some ivy growing on the side of the church and decided that the ivy needed to come down. And so they lit it on fire. Oh. Um, and that uh, meant the church caught fire and that part of it collapsed. And then they discovered that underneath the plaster were all of these earlier uh, remains. So a lot of the uh, stele are now inside the church, sort of scattered, or some of them are sort of very crudely mounted for people to look at. Um, not that many people go out that direction. Um, so uh, it, it is useful, though, in that we can access them and we can uh, take photographs under controlled conditions. So we're using photogrammetry, uh, which your uh, listeners uh, may or may not know about. That's a, a technique for creating a three-dimensional image by taking many photographs of a single object from various angles and combining them together digitally to create a 3D image using a specialized software that we have access to. So the big thing there is making sure that you have a proper amount of overlap, that you have good enough lighting, um, and that um, you are you know, careful about the background as much as you can be because you have to remove the background. So some kind of backdrop green screen is often helpful in helping to isolate the object from whatever happens to be behind it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, green screen just gave me uh, shivers and nightmares. I'm doing some other <laughs> video projects and man, right. if you don't get that green screen lit, right. I've been doing some research into it for some future stuff and man, it can really be a, can really be a hassle. <laughs> and it is something that we're still kind of working with. Last summer was our first season and mm-hmm. we were there uh, for about uh, four weeks. So not a very long season. So uh, we still have a lot of work ahead of us and a lot of it is sort of trial and error, uh, figuring out the best practices for, uh, sort of lighting and photographing these particular objects. Nice. Um, and just so people know that are listening to this, uh, episode 27 of this podcast, we did extensively go over photogrammetry. So if you don't know what that is, go back and check out episode 27. There'll be a link in the show notes. So are you, you know, with these uh, stele being inside the church now, uh, and you guys, you know, you're taking photographs of these things and reconstructing them, are you planning on putting together a reconstruction of the entire um, the entire church? Like, probably as it's changed through the ages, I would imagine too, right? Well, that is an interesting idea. <laughs> it's not a project <laughs> that we are tackling right now. It's, it, that would be a very uh, extensive project. There have been studies of the architecture of the church um, and trying to understand its phases of construction. There's actually right now a very heated debate in Spanish archaeology on this church and other early medieval churches like it, because uh, many of them were traditionally um, dated to the Visigothic period and some 
uh, art historians aren't so sure right now. So in any case, it's it's been investigated from that angle. Um, but one issue is that many of these steely are no longer in the walls. The church was reconstructed. And so we don't always know their original position. We know the position for maybe about a third of them. Um, so uh, those we could document in principle, uh, but we also are using sort of more traditional digital photographs and images and, and, and using looking at individual walls rather than a 3D model of the whole church at, the point, at this point. That's more a technique or an approach we're using in Nahara uh, to study the, the buildings there. Um, another technique that we're looking to use, although I don't know if we'll be able to do it this summer, is uh, reflectance transformation imaging. Um, I don't know if you've ever discussed that in your no. podcast, but that's a new technique, relatively new, at least in archaeology. And what it involves is taking photographs of a, uh, an object and rather than moving the camera or the object around, in other words, rather than taking photographs from different angles, the camera stays still and you move the light source. And from that, you can create a sort of a digital reconstruction that allows you to manually kind of drag the light source around. Mm. So you don't actually have to, you know, a lot of times when you're looking at something and you see a photograph, you wish, oh, I wish it were illuminated from this other direction so I could see those letters better or that image better or that, you know, because uh, many of these have sculpture on them, uh, various um, figures on them, for example. This way you can actually control the light source yourself. And it's very helpful for inscriptions like these that are often very faint um, because you really would like to have light, raking light to see those letters, but you'd also like to have raking light from different directions depending on exactly how the letters were carved. So I've seen this, uh, I've seen this used and it's not that complicated a kind of technique, but it does require you to have a lot of control over your lighting situation. You know, that's interesting. I, I haven't heard of that. Um, I, I've got a question. Can you only use this indoors when it's already sort of it? you can really control all the light or can you do it outdoors and maybe do it, I don't know, at night or in the dark? Um, I don't know about doing it outdoors at night. That's actually kind of interesting. I've only ever seen it done indoors, partly because you really want fairly bright light and fairly uh, even illumination. Yeah. So you want all parts. It just is you're, you're varying the angle. Uh, more than the amount. So if you were doing it outdoors, you would probably need uh, the object still to be fairly small. Um, mm -hmm. I don't, I've never seen it anything larger than, um, you know, a couple of meters in size. Yeah. I noticed in the summer report that you sent me that um, you guys have some antique or uh, some, an some digitized antique maps of some of these areas. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have any more information like that that'll help you out with these? Or are you guys ongoing research project perhaps on some of these structures to maybe find some, uh, some drawings or etchings of them in some uh, historic documents? We are still looking. So this refers to our work in Nahara and we're trying to create a 3d model of that city in various phases of its existence mm -hmm. from, I mean, the earliest material we have is really uh say, 11th, 10th, 11th century AD, and then going on to uh, about the 16th century is where we're um, stopping our investigation. So we have a variety of early maps starting in the 18th century and going up to uh, the early 20th century, which are extremely useful because they preserve features that are no longer visible. Some of those are geographical features like watercourses uh, that are now underground. They've been covered over. Um, others are buildings um, that were standing or at least partially standing a few hundred years ago and now are, are 
either disappeared or at least their position is not very well known. So we're trying to use those as kind of guideposts to help us do some ground truthing. In other words, looking on the uh, in the city today to try to figure out where these buildings actually stood and see if there's anything still visible of, of those structures, um, either in the city or in the outskirts of the city. Um, one of the things we were doing with that is we're creating a GIS uh, digital map of the site. And there, to a limited extent, at least, you can, if you find sufficient correspondences between the early map and the modern city, you can bend or rubber sheet the map in order to find out where these other objects or other uh, buildings once stood. It really requires, though, that the map be more or less to scale, at least <laughs> roughly speaking. And some of the earliest maps are very much hand-drawn, yeah. not scale at all. So in those, we have to do more qualitative analysis than quantitative analysis. Okay. You know, for this uh, 3D modeling of this city, um, are you guys using any uh, any either existing aerial photography or are you taking your own with either like kites or drones or anything? Good question. We're doing both. Uh, we are using uh, aerial photographs, Spanish government has put up a whole series of very high uh, resolution aerial photographs from much of Spain. Mm -hmm. um, it is the resolutions about depends on the, uh, the area and the year of the photographs, but it's generally between 25 and 50 centimeters, mm -hmm. uh, which isn't bad for compared to many other areas of Europe. And there are also some historic aerial photographs that we're using from the 1950s, wow, which again, nice. often show things that you can't see today because the ground cover has changed or they've been moved or you know destroyed or otherwise because there's been a lot of expansion in this area. It is a more rural area uh, than a lot of uh, places in Spain, but still there's been a lot of building in this in this region. Okay. Um, but uh, we're also this summer planning to do some drone flights. Uh, we're working with a team uh, from uh, the amateur group called Drone Adventures. Uh, mm -hmm. who have cooperated with many archaeological projects in the Mediterranean. And we're going to be flying over some of the outlying areas of Nahara. We can't fly in the city itself, mm -hmm. uh, both because of local sensibilities and Spanish law that prohibits it. Uh, but we can fly over some of the areas to the west of the city, particularly one area where we have uh, historical and archaeological evidence uh, of an ancient Jewish quarter. And that's one of the areas that we're really focusing on because it was one of the largest Jewish uh, populations in northern Spain in the Middle Ages, uh, and certainly one of the wealthiest. And yet it has been completely, um, it's basically completely untouched, this wow. whole part of the town. It was abandoned uh, at the end of the 15th century with the expulsion of the Jews. And as far as we can tell, it was never reoccupied. And so essentially there is an entire Jewish suburb with no later building on top that we can date fairly precisely. And we're, we're looking to try to understand better what, how big it is, uh, how it was defended, uh, its arrangement, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be using drones in that area and some other areas around the town uh, that have both uh, regular digital cameras and a thermal camera. Uh, the thermal camera is useful for showing differences in surface temperature, uh, and that helps us understand a little bit about what's underneath the uh, the surface layer of soil. Right. Because if there's a very deep soil layer, it tends to warm up more slowly than if there's stone a stone wall underneath. Hmm. And so you you take these photographs in the morning when things are just warming up, and they will show 
terraces or other kinds of features like that that may not really be visible even in an aerial photograph um, because of ground cover or whatever. Okay. That's really interesting uh, that the thermal imaging can be that accurate. That's pretty cool. And it's not quite as high resolution as the regular digital camera, but depending on the height, we're expecting a resolution of somewhere around six centimeters uh, uh, for the uh, digital camera and about nine centimeters for the thermal camera. That's not bad. Per pixel. <laughs> yeah, that's not bad at all. Um, you know, uh, I, have you guys looked into, would LiDAR be useful where you're at? Or any of you guys thought about that? So there is publicly available LiDAR data through the Spanish government of much of Spain. It's not very high resolution, but it does help us construct our 3D model, terrain model. Uh, but for something like this area, it is a little bit specialized kind of uh, study. You really need somebody who has a lot of experience with it. It tends to be a little bit expensive. And I don't know that it would provide drastically superior results than what we can get uh, through mm -hmm. optical methods. Uh, the ground cover is pretty, I mean, there, there's, there is ground cover, but it's not like there are a lot of trees, for example, right. at least in the areas we're interested in, um, or other kinds of shrubbery or bushes or scrub that might uh, otherwise make it difficult to really get a good model. Yeah, I'm looking at I'm looking at some of the pictures you have in your report, and it looks largely uh, agricultural in the in the valley, anyway. Right, and so. so one of the things we're looking to do for the summer after this, so mm -hmm. that would be 2017, would be to do some geophysical prospection, um, magnetometry, for example, yeah. to really find out more clearly what is underneath the ground uh, before we try to think about anything like excavation. Mm -hmm. So you guys haven't currently done any excavation on this project? You're really in a sort of a data gathering mode right now? We're data gathering mode is a non-intrusive sort of multi-aspect project. Excavation certainly is fairly expensive and requires mm -hmm. a lot more in the way of permits. And so one of our strategies is to, you know, produce some results uh, to help us gain funding for more detailed analysis or more detailed investigations later on. Okay. Yeah, speaking of permits, it, it, I want to go back to the drone regulations real quick. I, I'm heavily involved in drone stuff here in Nevada. And uh, mm -hmm. it's just, it's interesting to hear somebody talk about drone regulations in another country. Cause here we always, we all, everybody you talk to seems to think that uh, the United States is the only place with drone restrictions and that uh, <laughs> everywhere else just says, whatever, do whatever you want, <laughs> but not quite oh, the right. case. <laughs> no, it's actually pretty stringent. Um, yeah. Fortunately, one of the people who's cooperating with us is Spanish and he has some familiarity with the regulations which are available online. You need a pilot's license for one thing. Uh, you're not flying over urban areas, as I mentioned. And it's not quite clear what that means. We're, we're going to have a fairly generous buffer zone so that we cannot be, you know, you know, accused of being uh, of encroaching on that built-up area. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the... Uh, one of the restrictions or one of the penalties is that if a private individual flies uh, or, or, or flies over an urban area, in other words, if you violate that restriction, there is a 225,000 euro fine. Wow. So it's, it's pretty substantial. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to take our first break right now, and uh, we're probably going to try to um, reconnect the Skype call because we just got a little fuzzy right at the last second, but uh, we'll come back on the other side of the break. 
All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. Did aliens build Stonehenge? Did the Easter Island statues walk? Did the Vikings colonize Midwest America? What does mainstream archaeology have to say about all of this? Listen to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast and learn about popular archaeological mysteries, hoax or fact. Learn to tell the difference with Dr. Kenneth Fader and co-host Sarah of the Archie Fantasies blog. Check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Fantasies and get ready to think critically. Let's get back to the show. Funny beady blokes you will see are a staple of archaeology. All right, we're back. And before we continue on with the technology discussion, I've got to ask real quick, Scott, you mentioned you're in the art history department. What the heck are you doing on this project? What got you into this? Well, that's actually just one of the quirks of being a classical archaeologist. Uh, there is no basic uh, you know, home for us in academia. Uh, there are relatively few departments of archaeology anywhere in the United States. So those of us who work in this area tend to either be in classics or in art history or history or more rarely in anthropology. Um, and when I was going through grad school, I went to the University of Missouri, where the department there is the Department of Art History and Archaeology. Mm. So one of the things that was impressed upon us is that really there isn't or shouldn't be a stark divide between art history and archaeology, that all of it's material culture, and we're just looking at it from a variety of different angles, mm -hmm. and that uh, there's no particular reason to cordon off certain objects or certain materials like ceramics from sculpture or painting and say that is archaeology well this is art uh, those are pretty <laughs> traditional but outdated kinds of conceptual boundaries yeah we always learn that it makes more sense to to look at everything a little bit more holistically for lack of a better word right correct uh and it is actually something that has you know uh, good and 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 Advantages and disadvantages, let me say. Mm -hmm. um, I'm in a art department in a college of um, communications and fine arts. So <laughs> that means that at Central Michigan University, for example, I'm not uh, in the same college as the history department. And in fact, we don't have a classics program at CMU. However, being in the Department of Art and Design with studio artists means that I have the potential of collaborating with people that... Uh, archaeologists uh, might not normally come into contact with. So, mm -hmm. for example, our ceramics professor, uh, Greg Staley, is teaching a 3D design class uh, that involves 3D uh, modeling and printing. And uh, we're having him work on some of the uh, ceramics that we've been studying from the Jewish quarter uh, of Nahara and creating 3D models and then printing them out using our 3D printers so our students can look at them and study them without having to go to Spain mm -hmm. um, and, and, and look at them there. So we're experimenting with a variety of ways of, of seeing and studying and investigating this material, uh, a lot of which um, is actually overlaps with what people are doing in studio art or in other, other departments. Well, you know, that totally makes sense because, and I, I've mentioned it on this podcast before, but um, it's been proven time and time again, all the way back to the old Xerox Park days, where 
you know, you throw people from different disciplines into the same space where they can have these chance encounters and crazy out of the box thinking happens. So, oh, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, Chris, go ahead. Scott, this is incredible, and I I love hearing about the interdisciplinary opportunities that you have. And uh, my my first like real question is, what has your like technological setup given you in terms of results? Like, uh, what are some of the results of your of your research? If you're at liberty to discuss that, you know, if if you're not uh, you know pending like publication and stuff like that. Well, right now, as I told your colleague, uh, we are still in the data gathering stage. So we only started last summer. Uh, we have been working with the ceramics a little bit longer um, as part of this. So our results are right now very preliminary. We have um, had a couple conference presentations. And in fact, I'm going to be talking at the International Medieval Studies Congress in Kalamazoo next week uh, that describes a little bit about our approach. But right now, uh, there's a, a couple of things I guess I could say. One is that the work we've been doing with the uh, Steely in the uh, church in San Vicente uh, has shed some light on the sources that these uh, medieval architects were drawing from. The church has a very long history, as I mentioned, and it incorporates both Roman and medieval uh, Steely in the fabric of the church, starting at some point in the early Middle Ages and going until the 16th century. And what we can see is by looking at the various stages of construction and correlating that with the specific steely or architectural blocks, we can tell something about what is available in the local environment for them to use. Uh, Early on, they're using blocks that are clearly from buildings, nice big square blocks, which are good construction materials. A little bit later, those seem to be drying up, so they begin using more or less rectangular Roman uh, funerary steely. And at some point, those seem to dry up, and they don't have any access to that uh, source anymore. So they're using medieval uh, tombstones, which are extremely awkward because they're not rectangular. They have a large round top and then a kind of triangular base. And so what they do is they're slicing those up and creating these weird, odd shapes that must have been a real bear to construct into some kind of straight wall um, and putting those into the fabric of the church. So we're kind of creating a map or a model of the material culture of this region over time uh, through this uh, method of correlation. And one of our goals there is to try to figure out where the Romans are because Apart from this church, there are almost no Roman remains in this part of that valley. There are some a little bit farther uh, down the river valley, maybe about 12 or 13 kilometers away. Uh, but that's a fairly long distance to be bringing this material. Mm-hmm. So yeah. so it, there must have been a Roman settlement somewhere in the upper part of this valley, but we have no clue at this moment where it is. But if we can study these, we can maybe get some idea about the materials they were using, the size of the buildings, and perhaps that can help us narrow down where this might have been. Huh, that's really interesting, and I can see that really playing into various you know, like, uh, different research questions on many different scales, not just, uh, you know, from what you're looking at, but even for like deep time, uh, you know, ecological kind of research questions on like, you know, the sourcing of materials and, 
you know, like uh, human behavioral ecology, you know, like what makes sense to source from where, stuff like that. Um, so do you feel like um, for the particular uh, uh, technology that you're using, you know, the variable light source, uh, do you feel like that is particularly advantageous to the region that you're working at, being that it is a palimpsest of occupation? Well, one of the reasons we're using these techniques is to try to collect as much data as we can in a variety of ways. And the importance of being able to study these here in the United States, I think, is one of our uh, motivations for using this technology. Another is, of course, diffusion and dissemination of our results. So I think that one of the things that is turning out to be the case is we're using this technology at a whole variety of different levels. We're using it at the level of the individual stela. So we're doing photogrammetry of one particular Roman tombstone. We're using it at the level of buildings. So in Nahara, individual structures or parts of structures that uh, exist, we're trying to map at a um, at a fairly detailed level. And then the whole town of Nahara through time uh, we're trying to study using many of these same tools. So photogrammetry, for example, works on all three of these scales. And the idea is that this will all, one hopes, seamlessly fold together and create a way of understanding these regions at different scales and both not just physical scales, but temporal scales. Very cool. And yeah, I, I can totally see that being a draw towards uh, researchers in the United States, you know, trying to make things more cost effective across, you know, various scales and research questions. So, uh, Scott, what are some of your future research goals? Like how long, what, how far out have you guys planned this project so far? Well, currently I've been working on a grant from Central Michigan University, kind of seed grant to help us get started. Um, and this is the third year of that grant. Uh, and mm -hmm. we'll be um, uh, finishing that up this summer. At that point, we'll have quite a bit of data and uh, we'll be looking forward to quite a lot of data crunching and processing back here. But as I mentioned, we're looking to continue our field work uh, the following summer probably with some geophysical prospection at Nahara, and we're going to be looking for uh, grants to help fund that, that aspect of the work. Uh, over in San Vicente in that uh, valley, we're going to be hopefully trying to find candidate sites for further study uh, that might have uh, Roman or medieval remains. There are a couple that uh, we are looking at, but nothing that we, as I mentioned, that we have specifically pinned down yet. So we might do some things like some aerial photography there in order to try to look for crop marks or other uh, signs of Roman presence uh, that we can then further study. So the this particular phase of the project, I think, is probably has you know a couple more years of data gathering and then a fair amount of laboratory work afterwards. But the project as a whole, we're hoping, will continue for many years in the future, and that individual components that will be of shorter duration can be incorporated within this larger framework. And even other researchers who might be interested in some of the uh, material that we're looking at would be welcome to participate and to, you know, incorporate their research questions into the larger project. And are you collecting or will you be collecting any data in a way that will allow you to, um, you know, without waiting for analysis and data crunching to be able to, um, put a public face on this and, and maybe, I don't know, put up a website and start sharing some of your, some of your findings or maybe some of the, the less difficult to crunch data. 
<laughs> that can be put uh, up for immediately. Understood. Well, we do have a website, <laughs> although it is in need of uh, updating, and I'm working on that right now. It is nahariavalleyproject.org. Um, you, your listeners may want to look at your website to find yeah, out how yeah. to spell that. Um, but we'll put that in the show notes. Perhaps <laughs> that would be fine. Um, and yes, we have intentions of putting up uh, data that we're collecting for um, use of a uh, a wider audience who might want to have, you know, ask different questions than we're asking or to use the data in different ways. Uh, we are very much committed to uh, being as open as possible as, uh, with the information that we're collecting. Okay. And uh, I think I've got one, one final question for you. What is, uh, it's kind of the blank check, blank check question. If funding <laughs> were not an issue, what, is there anything you've seen, um, you know, tech wise or, or anything you'd like to do that if, if money was no object, you'd like to get it out there? Well, that's a good question. Uh, the the kinds of analysis that we're doing, most of them, fortunately, are relatively modest in terms of investment. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose the thing that would be most nice to have would be a, a laser scanner where we could uh, scan some of these artworks instead of trying to do photogrammetry because laser scanning, at least in some cases, can be a little bit more uh, accurate. The mm-hmm. the increase in uh, precision or increase in resolution really is not, I don't think, uh, sufficient justification to try to you know, look to get one of those uh, yeah. because it's not really dramatically better, at least in, in most cases. Uh, but that's something that would be nice to have, uh, particularly for you know larger buildings and structures like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there are there are groups that are doing that, so that'd probably be something we'd like to have. Um, and uh, I suppose that more and better access to uh, geophysical technology would be mm-hmm. something that would be very useful because, as I mentioned, there's a lot of this, uh, a lot of these areas, both in Nahara and in San Vicente, where we might know that there's something there, but we don't know, necessarily know exactly where it is. And so, some uh, a way to be able to look at a very large area without having to excavate ahead of time. Uh, would be advantageous in that respect. Okay, um, yeah, I know. Uh, I know. I've done uh, some research into photogrammetry and things like that. I know when photogrammetry is done right, man. I mean, you can get centimeter or less accuracy, um, you know, relatively easily uh, versus yeah. bringing a laser scanner out. And you've sure. already got cameras out there, so you know why not just uh, do the photogrammetry right rather than right lug over another piece of equipment, you know. The level of accuracy that we need is depends on what we're studying. For exactly. structures, we don't really need you know millimeter at level accuracy. Uh, <laughs> the the steely are a bit challenging, I'll say, simply because of the the carving. It is quite shallow, which is one mm-hmm. reason we're looking into this uh, uh, reflectance transformation imaging okay. as a as an alternative. But um, but yes, I, I think we're going to be able to get good enough results with what we have. I, I will disagree with you on one thing, um, and, and that's needing the level of accuracy. As a CRM archaeologist here in this country, most yes. of the sites I deal with are almost always going to be destroyed after I see them. So, sure. you know, <laughs> we like to rec- we like to record stuff at a at as at as with as much detail as we possibly can. So I could see the I could see the benefit to actually over recording if you're there already and it's not costing you a lot of extra money or time. Yeah, you know, if you've got the equipment, just do it. That you know, I kind understand. Of thing. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, in, <laughs> we're we're studying buildings that aren't going anywhere, at least one mm-hmm. hopes in, in the near future. So yeah. um, we are going to try to get as high level of precision as we can, of course. Um, but uh, if if we 
don't get absolute highest possible, it's not going to be a major uh, problem because we are looking at this city at a at a city level, right? So we're interested in an area of like one by one kilometer, and in that on that scale, an extra few millimeters is not going mm-hmm. to be a major uh, major difference. Yeah, just make sure you buy some clippers for the descendants of the guys who try to torch the RV, ivy on the church. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you Scott, thought? I have yeah, one more question for you. Uh, so you had mentioned that uh, you do some open access uh, data sharing and stuff. Have you found that through your uh, making your data available? that you've had any collaboration outside your project or from unexpected sources in like interdisciplinary contexts? Well, uh, to clarify, uh, we are still in the early stages. So I, we have a place in a website where that data is going to go, but there's nothing yet available. We, we simply don't have enough of it yet, I think, to warrant putting it online. I think at the end of this summer, we will uh, begin doing that, that process. And I am hoping very much that it will provide uh, others with not only awareness of what we're doing, but maybe spark some synergy, to use a buzzword, uh, between <laughs> our project and other researchers who might be interested in what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. I could see that being a very attractive project for uh, researchers from other fields. Yeah. Uh, so I got one more possible suggestion for you because you made me think of something and I was trying to think about it later. Um, the stele, you mentioned those, you know, having like shallow um, shallow engravings on them. Right. And have you thought about the app D-Stretch? Have you ever heard of that? It's, it's mostly I for not. It's mostly for pictographs um, because it helps to... It's basically, and they now have a smartphone application, which is pretty fantastic, but it basically runs an algorithm on photographs and mm-hmm. adjusts the light in, um, adjusts the levels of the colors in predictable ways that these guys have studied over the last few decades on how to do that so you don't have to manually do it. And it really brings out a lot of information. And it can work on, um, on petroglyphs as well, which are very similar to, obviously, what you're talking about here. So okay. I don't know. It's a $20 smartphone app that you could just bring over and and I think you could actually probably drop pictures if you had them in there already into the D-Stretch app and then just run the D-Stretch algorithm on them on the different things. And, and you might actually you might actually find some surprising things like there was some some faint pigmentation that you weren't even aware of that D-Stretch will actually bring out if the lighting is red. So That would be very interesting. I'll definitely look that up. Yeah. All right. Well, Scott, we've got the website linked into the um, – into the – show notes here so people can check okay. that out and keep up with you guys' progress. Is there Excellent. anything you wanted to mention about this project that we didn't ask you about? There is one more. Uh, you didn't uh, ask me about the uh, software we're using to create uh, the 3D reconstruction of the ah, city. Yes. Yeah. And so I just oh, wanted yeah. to say that uh, we're going to be using a City Engine uh, through Esri, uh, which is designed for urban planners, but it's a way of uh, creating a 3D model based on rules-based modeling. So you nice. create a set of rules using a scripting language similar to Python uh, that allows the program to create you know, a variety of different models based on a, a random input. So if you want to, for example, have your town populated with houses, well, we don't have you know, archaeological remains of individual houses from the 11th century. But what we can do is insert typical houses that would have been visible in northern Spain based on other projects and vary them so that it doesn't look like row housing, modern row housing, (laughs) to create a better visual impression of what the city might have looked like in its earliest phases. Okay. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely put that in the show notes too so people can check that out. Thanks a lot, Scott, for coming on the show. 
Thank you for having me. No problem. And uh, everybody go check out those show notes. Go check out the project and be sure to comment if you have anything and we can forward your questions on to Scott and see if he can answer them. All right. Thanks for the show. The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. All right, and we're back. Uh, normally, we do a segment that we call App of the Day, but I guess it's App every fortnight. Um, but this time, we're going to switch things up, and I'm not doing an app, and neither is Webby. Uh, instead, I'm going to talk about two outdoor speakers that are Bluetooth enabled, and you might be scratching your head, uh, or you might get it already. Uh, archaeologists love to listen to music when they're uh, out excavating or just hanging out um, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of one of those things that, you know, I, I have been looking at reviews of outdoor speakers for years. And, uh, you know, I'd say a decade ago, I had one that had the little dock for the first generation iPod touch. Uh, oh, yeah. And I loved it. But those little docks are so sensitive. And, um, you know, they just never survived. So it ended up having to be used with the auxiliary cord. So anyhow, uh, here we are in the year 2016, and Bluetooth has really solved the dock issue. So the first speaker that I'll talk about is from a brand called TDK, and it is their A33 wireless weatherproof speaker. Uh, and so I've listened to this one in person, and it has great sound. Uh, I listened to it in a gym, and uh, my workout partner had it sitting on a bench next to us, and you could hear it all throughout the entire room, and it was a pretty big room, and uh, we were making a lot of noise and stuff in there, so it, it has... Uh, that, was, that wasn't annoying at all for everybody else. <laughs> well, <laughs> we had the room to ourselves, so it, oh, okay. it worked out. I, I wouldn't have done that otherwise, but... Um, Right. Yeah, so it's got uh, enough capability to fill the room. I haven't been able to find out uh, how many decibels it's capable of reaching, but I felt like it was adequate and it had a pretty good bass and mid-range. Um, we didn't really test the volume enough to test the, the high ends of things. Um, but so it has a six-hour playtime, uh, which is pretty decent. Uh, it'll get you through most mm -hmm. of a work day. And it's uh, got all sorts of uh, compatibilities with different uh, versions of Bluetooth and, uh, you know, different uh, auxiliary inputs and stuff like that. So you can play just about anything on it. You know, normally in Archaeotech, we were guilty of favoring the, the iOS system. So, you know, <laughs> here we are branching out. You can, you can put whatever you want up to this thing. Um, nice. So that being said... Uh, the price on Amazon is $57.90, and you get one choice of color. It's black. It looks pretty nice. 
Um, and it's not very heavy. It's not very big. So it's very portable. You can put it in your bags, your, your dig kit and whatnot. Um, and you can also put it on a table and it doesn't take up much space. So I say, you know, for the price point and for its, um, quality, it's, um, it's a good bargain. And the ruggedness rating, uh, these are rated in IP and then a number. And so this is an IP 64 rating, which means that it can withstand a, uh, temporary deluge, you know, like a little rainstorm. It claims you can put it in the shower. Uh, mm. I wouldn't do that. Um, yeah. But it can certainly hold up to humidity and dust, which is something that we will all subject our electronics to uh, in archaeology. So uh, I'd say, yeah, it's it's a good bargain. Uh, I've personally been eyeballing one that I'm probably going to pick out right now. Um, a friend of mine has this. It's from a company called Outdoor Technology, and it is the Turtle Shell 2.0. Uh, this one sells for about $80. There's several different color options. Uh, purple is the most expensive, and it's $130. Uh, I'm assuming because you know, Prince recently passed away, and purple things are very mm. expensive right now. That's just a wild <laughs> guess. Um, purple things are expensive. <laughs> nice. This one's uh, IP rating is IP65 versus the TDK's IP64, so you've got you know, one point higher. I don't know that that's really a, a big selling point. Uh, but yeah, what's the range on that scale? You know, I don't know how high it goes, but some of the other ones are only like IP 46 or IP 30 ish, yeah. somewhere around there. So, um, this one though, I've seen the promo videos and stuff like people will strap it to kayaks. They'll strap it to all sorts of things, their backpacks, their bicycles. Um, and in the promo video, it shows them like throwing it, you know, basically like mm -hmm. skipping it across the sand. Uh, and it's got a very rugged uh, frame around it, and it's also rubberized, um, so it can withstand quite a few shocks. Now, the thing that really sets this thing apart is its playtime of 16 hours is pretty incredible, and it has a standby time of 700 hours. Um, in addition to that, it has much more compatibility features. And one of the cool things about the outdoor technology Turtle Shell 2.0 is that it has basically a conference call capability. So it has a built-in microphone and speakerphone, and it can um, sync up with like your phone controls. So, you know, not only can you be sitting around, uh, you know, your, your field headquarters, um, you know, doing whatever, listening to music, but you can also basically host a, a room conference call with this thing. Um, it has a Bluetooth range of 32 feet, which is kind of impressive. Um, most other Bluetooth speakers that I've had any experience with, you can't really go much further than like 10 to 12 feet before it really starts to fuzz out on you. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> but yeah, and also the the size and shape uh, of this thing is pretty nice for being able to like stuff it away into you know whatever bag or strap it onto whatever. Uh, there's optional uh, straps that are sold separately uh, that help you mount it to all sorts of things, and there's also like a handlebar or like frame mount that you can use to mount to just about anything. Um, 
so yeah, I can't remember if I had already mentioned this, but uh, the price point is about $80 for most of the color options. Um, they range from black to all sorts of bright colors so that you won't lose them in whatever surroundings you put it in. Uh, and the, uh, <laughs> the little advert for it says that um, it is louder than a bear's roar. It's 90, it's capable of uh, sustaining quality sound at 96 decibels. And for comparison, a bear can roar at 90 decibels. So if, if you ever want to drown out a bear with whatever you're listening to, this is the product for you. Um, Wow. Yeah. So that's just about all I have uh, for these two speakers. Um, I'm definitely planning on taking the turtle shell 2.0 down to Belize with me this summer. Cool. Okay. And uh, I looked up the IP ratings chart. So the the two digits actually mean two different things. The first digit is uh, one through six, and it stands for, uh, and IP is the ingress, ingress protection standard. So the one through six is for um, uh, like objects and dust and stuff. And then the one through eight, that could be the second number is for liquid penetration. And so six is the highest. Um, first off, number one, uh, one, if you have a, something with an IP rating of one, anything, probably just don't buy it because it's protected against a solid object greater than 50 millimeters, such as a hand. So anything smaller than your hand will destroy that object. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know what the hell would have a one, but don't get wow, it. Wow, <laughs> is, is that like an egg? Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> So that six is the highest level, and that's dust tight, zero ingress of dust permitted. So it's actually completely sealed up. So six is the highest. I would say six is probably what you need because it does refer to solid particles. Um, six is what you would need for anything archaeology, quite honestly. So the second number, though, is also interesting. With um, You said one of those was a 64. Well, the four is protected against water <clears throat> splashed from all directions, limited ingress permitted. Okay. And that's the a lot TDK of these actually a 33 is the, the 64. Right. So that's probably good enough because the 65 would be protected against jets of water, limited ingress permitted. Now to put that in perspective, 66 would be um, strong jets of water. So I guess, I don't know what jets of water actually even means compared to strong jets of water, <laughs> but it's basically forced water, water that's not under to, to me, that means water that's not under its own, power okay so if somebody was squirting you with a squirt gun don't protect yourself with the speaker um <laughs> you know protect yourself with your ipad yeah. because that can handle it <laughs> maybe don't take this um, on splash mountain you know <laughs> yeah maybe not maybe not so um yeah and then it just then it just gets better and better like the the highest one is protected against long periods of immersion underwater um so huh. Yeah, this is interesting i actually never looked up these ratings before because everything does have that so i would say for archaeology at a minimum you need an IP rating of six, and then probably um, probably the four would be my guess. Yeah. Um, Sixty-four would be the minimum you'd want to get. Anything less than that, and you risk damaging the the device. Yeah. Well, I also looked up the size and weight. So uh, the TDK A thirty-three is uh, two and one thirds pounds, and the uh, outdoor Technologies Turtle Shell 2.0 is two thirds of a pound, uh, mm. and it it measures 5.6 by 3.9 by 2.1 inches. So it's quite small. It says that it will fit in the palm of your hands, quote unquote, maybe both hands if you are a small child. 
<laughs> nice. Yeah. Okay. Uh, versus the TDK A33 is 3.7 by 9.5 by 2 inches. So it's it's only marginally bigger, the, the TDK is. Um, but both of these, oh, like that's... I had mentioned, are, are very transportable, durable enough to handle most of what you'll put it through in mm-hmm. reasonable field conditions. Um, right. So, yeah, keep those in mind. And then also refer back to uh, our previous episode on field power. Uh, if you mm-hmm. need to recharge these things because they're both USB rechargeable. Um, yeah. And also charge whatever device you're playing through these things. So yeah, you'll be set for the field with, uh, all that. So I'm not going to review it or talk about it, you know, put it in the show notes. I just want to mention, I have the jam box, um, the jawbone jam box, whatever the hell they call it. Um, Bluetooth speaker. And this thing's pretty decent. Although I don't know what the IP rating is. It's probably, quite low because all the ports are open on it. Yeah. Um, it's only got, it's got a speaker hole and it's got a charge hole and those are both open. Um, and then a speaker grill that goes all the way around. It's fairly rugged. I will give it that. I mean, I've traveled with it a lot, brought it into hotel rooms, but I probably wouldn't bring it on a, on an excavation. It does sound decent though. Um, which is nice. So, uh, I, li- I like it for that. And also I use it in my little home office here a lot. Um, cause it's also a pretty decent Bluetooth, uh, uh, you can connect when you connect your phone to it. You can ask answer a phone call on it. It's like a Bluetooth uh, speaker, like a conference speaker. So that's pretty um, that's pretty handy. Nice. So yeah. Um, so by the way, uh, and I'll stick this in the field notes in the field notes in the show yeah. notes. Uh, the field power episode is episode sixteen. So go check that yeah, out. Yeah, and I believe that was the first episode of Archaeotech that Webby and I had taken over mm-hmm. the show on. Yeah, absolutely. So we've come a long way since then, haven't we? We sure have. Yeah, nice. All right. Uh, so one thing I'm going to talk about, it's also, uh, you can use this on, on any smartphone or uh, small tablet, quite honestly, and I'll tell you why. Um, but in keeping with the theme of, of non-app accessories for this week, uh, I talked about the, I'm talking about the Life Active accessories from LifeProof and that they spell Life Active without the E because they're hipsters and they put a little, they put a little accent mark on the I. So <laughs> because they took the E off, I don't know. It's stupid. Anyway, um, Life Active spelled properly was probably trademarked by somebody else. <laughs> Who knows? Um, but the reason I'm talking about these is because one thing I really love and it's the why, reason I got an iPhone way back in the day. Um, I, I like things that have multiple purposes right so one of the things i i've been looking for um because i do i do biking i go jogging occasionally and very occasionally and uh and you know i need a a phone mount for my car because i'm constantly like either on the phone or something like that and i'm using the bluetooth in my truck but but i want to be able to see it and i use it for my navigation like a lot of us do so but did i want multiple accessories for doing these things. I hate, I've got my phone actually in a life proof case. Although I will mention that this doesn't require a life proof case to use. Um, it'll probably help because they're more rigid, but if it'll really work on almost anything, but you know, I don't, uh, I don't want to take this phone out of the case and I don't want to, you know, have to put it in something else. I had a little biking, uh, pouch on my handlebars that this doesn't fit in anymore. And I had to get a new one and I was like, Oh, this thing's a real pain in the ass. So, um, so I went to the life active system and the nice thing about this is they all come with a, a little like inch by inch square, uh, 
square sticky thing that's super sticky. It simply just won't come off. And that goes onto the back of whatever your device you're using. Like I said, I put this on an iPad mini as well. Um, but I've got it on my phone and I've got it on my iPad mini. And the accessories I have are the armband uh, for jogging. And I've got the bicycle mount for my handlebars on my road bike. And then I've got the suction cup to the window um, mount for the car. And it's just, you you just, you can slap it on in, in any of the four directions, the, the four directions, because it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to go on a certain way. You can lock it down if you need to. If it's not locked down, a simple 90 degree twist will take it off. And when it is locked down and when it's on, this window accessory, let me just put this into perspective, and Chris can attest to this. We had some pretty rough roads out on the last project we were on, and you know, when you're on your way home at the end of the day, you don't really want to go slow. So I'd kind of keep up on the speed a little bit, and I'd step on it out of the in my Tacoma. Uh, we'd drive in out of there, and I had this suction mount on the window with my iPhone on it, and I've got the iPhone 6S Plus with a life-proof case on it, so it's not super light, and... That suction mount never once came off, and it was in hot conditions, cold conditions. Not one time did it come off. And then at one point, we were following, using the app PDF Maps, uh, historic quad maps. We were just driving those roads, and we were following ourselves along the, the Geo PDFs. And I stuck that iPad mini right up onto the mount in the in the rough 4x4 conditions, and not once did it come off. Not once did it fall off, and that was impressive to yeah. me. And not only that, yeah, not only that, but I can just twist it off and then stick it right onto my bike without changing the case. I can stick it in my, on my armband without changing the case. And it's just simply amazing. So, yeah. yeah. And they sell other accessories for this too. There's a belt clip. If you're, uh, if you're over the age of 50 <laughs> and still put your phone on your belt, um, there's a, <laughs> there's a multi-purpose mount, which is kind of neat. It's just a round mount that you can, you can, I don't know, you can put anywhere. Um, and I think that's about it for those accessories. So there's the armband, the bike mount, the suction mount, the multi-purpose mount, the belt clip. And each one of them comes with another one of those little squares. So if you've got uh, – and you can't you can't get over that. So if you buy like three or four of these things, you're going to have three or four of those little squares. And you can put them on other devices. Or if you've got like a spouse or partner or husband or wife, you can give it for one of their phones. Um, so you both can use you know a lot of those devices. So. Yeah. It's uh, like I said, it's pretty handy. And the only thing I probably wouldn't stick this on is if your case has some sort of really soft, relatively loose, like um, like silicone backing on it, like a wraparound, like some of the OtterBox cases used to get really loose. Yeah. Um, if it's got that, it might flop around on there. You know, it, it works better on a rigid case, but you know, it just depends on your use case as well, you know, and what you're doing. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Cool. Well, these are some cool products. You know, one makes your life more fun. The other one makes your life easier. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And you know, the price range on this, the suction mount right now on their website, looks like everything's discounted about 10% uh, with free shipping. So you can get the suction mount with the little square on the back for $33.99 and the bike mount for the same price. And the armband for some reason is more expensive at $42.49. Huh. Um, but like I said, they'll hold any size of phone and any phone. So that's, that's a, I mean, that's a pretty decent system they've come up with that works with literally any device. I love it. That's pretty cool. All right. Well, check for these in the show notes. Uh, if you're using a, a Bluetooth speaker or some other system that you think archaeologists and, and those of us in the, in the trade that destroys things um, could, uh, could, could use, or if you use one of these and you actually broke it or something like that, I'd like to hear about that too. So leave any comments you have in the show notes or wherever you saw this podcast. And uh, also one last plea, you know, 
if you liked what you heard today, share it. You know, if it's on Facebook or Twitter, retweet. If it's on Facebook, share it. Um, you know, it's nice to get the little likes on there. Um, but it's it's also really cool when you guys share this stuff out so other people can hear it that, that aren't aware of our shows. Yeah, and if you happen to be looking at our podcast while within the iTunes uh, store, go ahead and rate it uh, five stars. Mm-hmm. If don't bother rating it if you're going to give us less than five stars. No, I'm just I'm just kidding. <laughs> but seriously, though, five stars. Nice. <laughs> but seriously, yeah. <laughs> uh, also on Stitcher and on Google Music, uh, Google Play, Google. I don't understand the Google system. If you're Google, you know where to find this stuff. <laughs> but our podcasts are there, too. All right. That's it for this week. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. Oh, yeah. Or in two weeks, whatever the interval is these days. In a fortnight. There we go. That's it for another episode of the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag archaeotech or tag at archpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, and was edited by Chris Webster. Been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.